Well, good morning, everyone. Good morning. My Bible is open up to Romans, the sixth chapter. And I will invite you to be getting your Bible open up to Romans chapter 6 as well. We're going to read uh, just a few verses from there in just a moment that will help to frame up everything that we want to talk about and to consider this morning from the Word of God. Today is a day that many people all over the world have set aside and given some special attention to thinking about Jesus, more particularly to thinking about Jesus as the resurrected Lord in His victory over the grave. And while the Bible does not attach any special significance to this one Sunday over any other Sunday, nor are Christians commanded anywhere to observe some kind of uh, liturgical calendar, this is the day that nevertheless many people of faith have thought about and have set aside to commemorate the resurrection of Jesus. And so if people are thinking about Jesus on this day, then I do want to meet people where they are and I want to talk about what people are talking about and thinking about. And I want to do that this morning from Romans the 6th chapter is where that's going to begin. Read with me if you will beginning in verse 3. In Romans 6 and in verse 3, the Apostle Paul writes, Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into His death? We were buried therefore with Him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with Him in a death like His, we shall certainly be united with Him in a resurrection like His. Without question, the resurrection of Jesus Christ is the centerpiece of New Testament Christianity. It is the single most incredible event in all of human history. According to Romans 1 and in verse 4, it is the event that declares Him to be the Son of God with power. And I am sure that I don't need to go into any great detail to this good audience that's listening to me right now that God did raise Jesus from the dead and that He ascended back into heaven and that He is sitting now at the right hand of the throne of God reigning as Lord of lords and King of kings. We believe that. We accept that. We are thankful for that. We sing songs about that. We understand that. We even defend that. Jesus was raised from the dead, and of that there can be no doubt. Having said all of that, I wonder sometimes, I wonder just how much does the resurrection mean to you and I on a day-to-day basis? I'm afraid in some ways the resurrection has just become for us a, you know, it's just a point of theology. That is, it's something that, that we know we should believe. We know that it's something we should be ready to defend. We know that it's something that we should, should understand. But, but the question is, what does it mean? What does it mean in your life right now? Paul says in Romans chapter 6 that the resurrection ought to mean something to Christians. Because just as Jesus rose to life from the grave, we too rose from the watery grave of baptism to newness of life. A life that we are living right now. And so the question is, do we see the resurrection just as some point of doctrine that needs to be affirmed? 
Or is it something that propels our entire Christianity every single day? Does the resurrection give your life purpose and direction and meaning right now? I don't know about you, but I want the resurrection of Jesus to be more than just a point of doctrine. I want it to have significance in my life. The way that it did for Paul and Peter and John and all of those other eyewitnesses in the first century. How they were willing to suffer for that truth and to confirm and affirm that truth. I want the resurrection of Jesus to be the source of power for my walk with God. I want it to change. I want it to change how I live. And this morning, I want to share with you Three practical ways that the resurrection of Jesus does just that on a very personal level. Are you ready for that? That all begins first and foremost by just stating this. That the resurrection of Jesus helps me to be confident that I have been cleansed of my past sins. That's what the resurrection means. You think for just a moment about the atoning work of Jesus to cleanse us from our sins. Now, we usually tend to talk about that in terms of, in terms of His death, don't we? We say things like, Jesus died for our sins. When we pray, we say, thank you, Lord, for the sacrifice that Jesus gave on the cross. And that is certainly so. Jesus did shed His blood. He gave His body for the forgiveness of our sins. We ought to say those things. Those are definitely good things to say. But what gets forgotten sometimes, or maybe just kind of overlooked sometimes, is that there is more to being saved from our sins than simply Jesus dying for us. In fact, if He just died and that was it, well then just forget the whole thing. We don't just want to die to sin and then that's it. We don't want to just be dead, do we? No. We want to do that Romans 6 verse 4 thing. We want to rise like Jesus rose from the grave. We want to rise to walk in newness of life. And that's not the only place where that idea is articulated. Would you look in Colossians 2 with me, please? In Colossians chapter 2, notice how the forgiveness of our sins it is explicitly linked to the resurrection. Here's a passage that probably is one of the more overlooked baptism passages, but man, it is full of meaning. In Colossians 2 and in verse 12, Paul says, "...having been buried with Him in baptism, in which you were also..." Notice now, "...raised with Him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised Jesus from the dead, verse 13, and you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with Him, having forgiven us all our trespasses. Can I just be really practical here? Sometimes you'll hear people say things like, I just don't think God would ever forgive me of my sins. Oh, the, the things that I have done are just so awful, so terrible. You don't want to know about the sins that I have committed. There's just no way that God would ever forgive someone like me. Do you want to know what I want to say to people who say and think those things? I want to say, read Colossians 2 verse 12. We arise from baptism through faith in the powerful working of God who raised Jesus from the dead. Let me ask you, what does it take to raise someone from the dead? 
What does it take to reanimate a dead body? What kind of power does that take? We, we can't even comprehend such a thing. Science has no clue about how to start human life. You know, scientists could build and could construct a perfect body, but they wouldn't know how to bring it to life. Frankenstein, that's a movie. That's not real. And so I ask again, what kind of power does it take to give life? And what kind of power does it take to give life to a body like this? In the case of Jesus, a body that has been beaten, it has been brutally tortured and crucified, stabbed in the side, nails through the hands and through the feet. Come on, this is not a body that is in good shape at all. And now it is a body that has been laid in a tomb and it's beginning on its third day in there now. And it's ready to start undergoing that process of decomposition, the natural process of deterioration. You want to start that body? You want to somehow give life to that body? What kind of power does that take? I don't know what kind of power that takes, but I know this. I know that God did that. God had the power to do that, no problem, no difficulty at all. And what Paul says here in Colossians 2 is that that same power, it is at work in you, it is at work in me. It is the powerful working of God to forgive us of our sins. And not just to forgive us of our sins, but furthermore, to help us to stay clean from our sins. To help us to overcome daily temptation in our fight against the devil. Would you look in Hebrews chapter 7 with me please? In Hebrews chapter 7, the writer lets us know that when Jesus was resurrected, He didn't just say, okay, I'm, I'm done now. Jesus didn't retire no, He actually has an active role in the power of God to help us overcome sin every day. Look at Hebrews 7 and verse 25. The writer says there, Hebrews 7 and verse 25, he says, Consequently, He, that's Jesus, He is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through Him since He always lives to make intercession for them. You see, the power of God is at work through Jesus. And that power is available to you and it is available to me right now. Now you think long and you think hard about the power of God. And I dare you to say, oh, I just don't think God could ever forgive me. My sin is just so great. Are you kidding me? If God has the power to give life to that bruised and battered and beaten body that was crucified on Calvary, then God has the power to forgive my sins, to forgive your sins, no matter how large they be, no matter how numerous they may be. And he furthermore has the power to help me to live and to serve and to do what is right. The resurrection puts an end to all this I can't. Because the resurrection gives me confidence that I can, I can walk in newness of life because I know that my sins have been cleansed. And it provides even more than that. Because the resurrection of Jesus means as well, secondly, it means that I can live in this present world without fear. You think for just a moment about your greatest fear. What is the one thing 
that you are just the mostest afraid of. Mostest isn't a word, but I'm going to make it a word. What are you the most afraid of of anything else in this life? If my wife was here right now, everyone would know exactly what hers is. She's afraid of frogs. And I'm not helping things today by wearing this green jacket. But of course they do surveys all the time about people's greatest fears and there's always some uh, pretty regular ones near the top of that list. The fear of heights, the fear of enclosed spaces, the fear of public speaking, which probably says something about how warped preachers are that we voluntarily do this. But you and I know what is the number one fear for most people. What's the number one fear? It is the fear of dying. People are afraid to die. And of course people do all kinds of things because they are afraid of death. That's why people do things like like go to the doctor and eat right and exercise. Why? Because we want to be healthy and we want to not die. And of course, much of that is very wise and it is very prudent. The Lord has given us a a strong survival instinct so that we will live. The Lord wants us to be able to live so that we can be productive servants in His kingdom. But there are many people whose lives are absolutely dominated by the fear of death. They are terrified even at the thought of death. And as a result... Their lives are crippled by that fear. The Hebrew writer talks about that in Hebrews chapter 2. But do you remember the very first thing that Jesus said after being raised from the dead in Matthew's account of the resurrection? In Matthew chapter 28, Matthew tells us about how Jesus, he met up with the two Marys. And in verse 10, after saying greetings to them, he then said to them, Do not be afraid. Don't be afraid. And why should they not be afraid? Well, you should not be afraid because things are all different now. The rules of the game have changed. By Jesus' death and even more so by His victory over death, that fear of death has been destroyed. And what that means is is that means that those who believe in Jesus and in His resurrection, what they can do is they can live fearlessly. They can live without fear. Isn't that true? That we can live without fear in this present world. Do you remember in Acts chapter 5? In Acts chapter 5, we read there about the apostles being brought before the Sanhedrin council. And they were told rather sternly and rather directly, don't be preaching about Jesus. Especially that stuff about Him being resurrected and all that sort of thing. Don't be talking about that anymore or else. In Acts 5 and in verse 28, the Sanhedrin council said so. In Acts 5 and in verse 28, the council says this, They said, we strictly charged you not to teach in this name, yet here you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching and you intend to bring this man's blood upon us. Verse 29... But Peter and the other apostles answered and said, We must obey God rather than man. Verse 30, The God of our fathers raised Jesus, whom you killed by hanging Him on a tree. God exalted Him at His right hand as leader and Savior to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. Hold on a second. Who was it that said those bold, courageous things? It was Peter... And the other apostles? 
Correct me if I'm wrong, but weren't those the same guys who just a few weeks prior, they were afraid to be found anywhere near Jesus or anywhere near the cross? Aren't they the ones who ran like a bunch of scared rats when Jesus was arrested? Wasn't Peter the guy who denied Jesus three times? And now these are the guys who are standing up to Jesus' crucifiers saying we ought to obey God rather than... Who are these guys? What changed here? I'll tell you what changed. What changed was that these men saw the resurrected Lord. And that knowledge caused them to come to the realization that everything that Jesus said was true and furthermore that one day they will be raised from the dead. Which means then that the very worst thing that you could do to these guys is not kill their bodies. No, they're not concerned about having their bodies killed. Hey, Sanhedrin Council, you do to our bodies whatever you feel like you've got to do. We're going to keep on obeying God. What these guys know is they know that even if their bodies are killed, they know that that's not the end of the line. They know that that's not the end of the story. And as a result, they are fearless. That's powerful. That is extraordinarily powerful. How do you stop somebody who is not afraid to die? How do you stop somebody who 100% believes what Luke chapter 12 and verses 4 and 5 teaches there? When Jesus said, do not fear those who kill the body, and after that there is nothing more that they can do. How do you stop somebody who believes that? How do you stop somebody who is way past all this fear of death stuff? How do you stop someone who is so determined to do what is right, even way more so than they are with saving their own skin? Let me just ask you, brother, sister in Christ, do you know this power? Do you have this? What if our government... What if our government started arresting Christians? I mean, just like they did in the first century, where they're coming into people's homes and dragging off mothers and fathers and husbands and wives and even children, dragging them off, arresting them, throwing them in prison. In fact, what if our government started executing Christians? What do you think would happen? I'll tell you what I think would happen. I suspect that there would be a sizable number of folks who claimed and wore the name of Christ who would very quickly renounce Christianity. The people who go to church, well, because Mama expects me to do that, I think we'd stop seeing them. Those people who come to church and are a part of God's people simply for social or for political purposes and gain, I think those people would give up on Christianity in the snap of a finger. But what about for the rest? What about for those who believe? Those who truly believe that the tomb is empty, that the power that rose Jesus from the dead will someday rise me from the dead, those people, they will persist without fear because death is not the end. And for the faithful child of God, that person is not afraid to die. And that is exactly what Jesus' resurrection does for us. And do you know what that means just practically speaking? What that means is, is that means you can't move me from Christianity by threatening to kill me. You can't make me quit being a Christian just because you fire me from my job. 
You can't cause me to give up on Jesus just because you laugh at me and make fun of me. You can't get me to leave the Lord just because you say you're not going to be my friend anymore. When a person taps into this power of the resurrection, everything about them changes because when you're no longer afraid, when you're no longer afraid even to die, then that changes everything about how you live. Because thirdly and finally this morning, when you and I believe in the resurrection of Jesus, what that does for us and what that means is that means that I can have tremendous hope for the future. Would you look with me in 1 Peter chapter 1, please? In 1 Peter chapter 1, I'm looking here at verses 3 and 4. In 1 Peter chapter 1 and in verse 3, Peter says something about hope. In 1 Peter 1 and in verse 3, Peter says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to His great mercy, He has caused us to be born again to a living hope. How so? Through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. To an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you. Do you see how the Bible says that the resurrection of Jesus, it gives us hope? It gives us an expectant confidence in something beyond the here and the now? In fact, what the resurrection does is it tells us, hey, things are getting better. Things are going to get considerably better because one day I'm going to go and be with the Lord. Of course, that's not how the world views things. The world doesn't understand that. In fact, the world doesn't understand us at all. I mean, get up early on Sunday to worship God and to hear the preaching of God's Word? Doing all that instead of sleeping in? Come on, are you, are you crazy? Giving up your money, giving your money to a church or to others in order to be charitable and to be kind and to do good instead of spending that money on yourself? Are you crazy? You know, abstaining and, and pushing away the desires of the flesh, the pleasures of sin, so that you can live a, a pure and chaste and holy life. What kind of sense does that make? To the world, it doesn't seem like Christianity holds much promise. They think we're crazy. They think we're stupid. And that we're missing out on all of the good stuff that life has to offer. But as Christians, as the true people of God... We know better, don't we? We believe in a very bright future. A bright future that is made possible because of our resurrected Lord. And as a result, that changes how I live right now. Can I illustrate that for you? Have you ever watched the replay of a sporting event that you already knew the outcome to? Right now, due to the coronavirus pandemic and the fact that all, essentially every sport has been placed on hold, suspended, or canceled, and everything's just at a standstill right now, channels like ESPN, and in fact all of their various channels, they're struggling to find programming to air 24 hours a day. And so what have they been doing the last couple of weeks? What they've been doing is they've been going back to some older broadcasts, older sporting events, and just replaying those. And I've, I've watched a few of those. In fact, just the other day, I watched the replay of the 2004 Masters Tournament. Now, I'm not a huge golf fan, but back during that time, I was. Phil Mickelson 
had never won a major championship before. But he was doing pretty good through the first three rounds of the Masters that particular year. And it came down to the final round. And the two leaders was Phil Mickelson and Ernie Els. And I remember watching that back in 2004. That's 16 years ago now. And I remember being on the edge of my seat as it came right down to the very last hole. But you know what? When I re-watched that just the other day, I didn't get all worked up. I didn't get all bent out of shape. I didn't jump up out of my chair and I'm yelling and screaming at the television. No. You want to know why? Because I knew. I knew that on the 18th hole, Phil Mickelson was going to hit an 18-foot birdie and he was going to end up winning the Masters by one stroke. I knew the ending. I knew how it was going to play out and as I watched the replay, that's exactly what happened. Now, can I try to pull that illustration out of sports and bring that to this lesson? Our world makes fun of us. They say that we are foolish for trying to live the way that we do. But you and I, you and I, we know how this game ends. We already know the outcome. We know who's going to win and we know who's going to lose. When all is said and done, when the smoke settles, we already know the end of this story. And that's why when a beer commercial comes on and the guy in the fishing boat on the commercial, he pulls out a six-pack of Bud Light and he says, man, it doesn't get any better than this. We know. We know that he's wrong. And we know as well, when we hear our co-worker talking about the affair that she's engaged in, she's involved in illicit sexual activity with someone who is not her spouse, and she's talking about it's so exciting, it's so thrilling to be involved in this relationship, we know, we know that she's wrong about that. And when the world tries to convince us that all that matters is this life, Right now, money and things and popularity and power and sex and greed, we know that they are dead wrong. We know that there is more. There is much more to come. As Peter says in 1 Peter chapter 1, there is an unfading, there is an imperishable, undefiled inheritance in heaven that's waiting for us. And we know that just as Jesus' story did not end when He died, we know that our story will not end at the grave either. Indeed, as Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, and verse 19, if our hope is in this life only, well then yeah, we are to be most pitied. But our hope, of course, goes beyond this life. Because Christ's resurrection, verse 20 it is the first of a great harvest. And when that harvest comes, we know that all of our dreams, all of our hopes, they will become reality. In that day and in that moment, our faith will become sight. Because we will be invited in to live in eternity in heaven. As one writer said, God didn't roll away the stone so Jesus could get home. God rolled away the stone so we could get home. And amen to that. And it is because of that great hope that we don't despair like the world does. We don't go through life with anxiety and fear and feelings of hopelessness. Why? Because we know that at the end of the day, there is indeed a rainbow in the cloud. That things are going to clear up 
and get considerably better for us. But that confident hope, it only comes when we tap into the power of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. It changes what we think and it changes what we know about the future. In these three ways then, I hope that what you see is that the resurrection, that it's not just some theological doctrine that we need to learn and we need to be able to defend. That it's more than that. And make no mistake about it, Jesus was raised from the dead. We need to understand that. We need to be able to defend that truth. That is absolutely so. But that truth furthermore, it needs to profoundly alter the very substance of how we live That truth needs to shape our lives in such a way that we are living in anticipation of a great and final resurrection ready and prepared to meet the risen Savior face to face. Would you pray with me please? Almighty God and our Father in heaven, Father, we give you all the honor and all the glory for the raising of your Son. Father, we are so thankful that He came here to die and to live again. And we're thankful for that, not just on this day, but we are thankful for that on every day. We're thankful for His resurrection and for the power that it provides for our lives right now. Father, we ask that You will bless these truths in our hearts, that we will be certain of them and that we will believe them fully. But even more, Father, we ask that You will use these truths in our lives so that we can serve You faithfully You can make us into the true followers of the resurrected Lord that we ought to be. And it is through His name, Jesus the Christ, that we pray. And amen.